Welcome to the fourth season of Version 20 Podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you are a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Now let's get to this week's episode. Harry Lombard Jr. was born in 1962. Ten years later, his half-brother Hubert Hartley was born. Growing up in Maine, a small town on the eastern seaboard with less than 7,000 residents, the teenagers went down two different paths. In fourth grade, Hubert joined the Boy Scouts and played football. In high school, he was quiet and kept to himself and was someone who enjoyed the solitary pursuits of hunting and the outdoors. Attending Lawrence High School, he dropped out in 1989 before graduating. Henry, on the other hand, often skipped school and became known to law enforcement when his mother visited the Fairfield Police Station asking them to find her son who'd skipped school. But even with his absences, Henry managed to graduate in 1980. Over the next decade, Henry often got into trouble with the law, but usually just minor things. Then in June 1990, he was with his sister Lisa and his friend Barry Licardi, driving around with the needed sergeant in her van. Henry and Barry needed to use the washroom, so Anita pulled into a mall parking lot. She parked near the back, and she and Lisa waited for the men to return. Court records reveal that as Barry and Henry left the mall and were walking across the parking lot back towards the van, Henry spotted Georgette Gorovo walking towards the passenger door of a car. Inside, her husband Ronald sat behind the driver's wheel, with the car running. Seeing his wife coming, he leaned over and pushed the passenger door open from the inside. Without warning, Henry burst towards Georgette. Before she could sit down, he pulled the purse from her shoulder and took off running. Barry ran in the opposite direction. Ronald told his wife to wait on the sidewalk, hit the gas pedal and chased after Henry as he weaved in and out of cars. Then Henry began to run out of steam, and his pace slowed. Ronald stopped the car, jumped out, and ran towards him. Henry swung the purse at Ronald, but the strap broke, and the purse went flying. Ronald tackled him, and the two men fell to the ground, struggling. Anina spotted Henry being chased and drove towards him. As the van screeched to a stop, she could see Ronald had wrapped his arms around Henry's legs so he couldn't run away. Anita and Lisa got out and started hitting and kicking Ronald. Then Henry began punching Ronald in the head. Unable to withstand the attack any longer, Ronald let go of Henry and curled up into a ball as they continued to kick him. Henry seized the moment 
jumped up and snatched the purse off the pavement and sprinted into the van, and the other three followed. A witness followed the van as it left the mall and contacted police with a description. Police quickly located the van and arrested everyone. The purse was still inside the van. A month later, Henry was arrested again when he failed to appear in court. He'd racked up additional charges for theft for stealing a case of beer from a store and breaking in and entering into a residence and theft of $300 worth of items. This time, Henry was kept in jail under lock and key until his trial. But the bars wouldn't hold him for long. Henry managed to smuggle in a hacksaw and covertly saw through two bars on the window in his cell, making an opening just wide enough for him to squeeze through. On September 25th, using a pair of pants and a blanket, he prepared a dummy and placed it in his bed and escaped. Friday night, his dummy passed bed check, and it wasn't until noon the next day when the guards went to wake him for lunch they discovered he was missing. Henry fled to Clinton, where his mother lived. But his taste of freedom didn't last long. He found the sheriff three days later, and to their surprise, turned himself in. Just before Christmas, a judge sentenced Henry to 18 months for robbery and theft, and another six months for the escape. The sentences would be served consecutively at the main correctional center. He was also ordered to pay $700 in restitution. Henry would have been released by 1984 and for six years stayed under the radar of police. Then, in mid-November 1990, 20-year-old Henry and his younger brother Hubert, who was now 18, rented a small cabin on Back Road, a remote and rural area outside Fairfield. Henry was tall and husky with short black hair, wispy bangs curled high on his forehead, eyeglass frames tucked behind his ears. Their black frames circled his dark eyes. Hubert, in contrast, was tall and lanky, his brown hair already receding at the temples. His ears pinned back tightly and his nose narrower than his brother's. Although physically much different, they shared the same lips, peaked in the middle and slightly turned downwards on the outer corners. Hubert's 18-year-old girlfriend, Tammy Thoreau, was also living with them. She and Hubert had a young daughter with another baby on the way. Henry purchased a 22 caliber hunting rifle from Tammy's brother. An old friend, Morris Martin, had been staying with them for a couple weeks. The two brothers then invited Paul Lindsay to come and stay with them, and the four of them would go deer hunting. Paul traveled two hours to join them. He and Morris had grown up together. On Wednesday, November 21st, Hubert drove Morris into town so he could cash his paycheck, and Hubert noticed, pocketed, 160 bucks cash. 
The next day was Thanksgiving. That morning, Henry loaded his twenty-two caliber rifle and left to go hunting, and was joined a little later by Hubert. Returning around 10 a.m., they saw Tammy in the living room. Morris and Paul were still asleep on the two sofas. Hubert ordered Tammy to go upstairs, saying he and Henry had something to do. Tammy did as she was told and retreated upstairs with her daughter. Through a hole in the floor, she could hear the two men talking. Henry said, If you don't shoot him, I'm going to shoot them both. The next thing Tammy heard was five or six shots. Then Henry stated, I didn't think you had the guts to do it. Hubert proudly told his older brother, I showed you, didn't I? Then added, I don't think he's dead yet. Shoot him again. Both men were shot multiple times. Paul died from a shot fired into his head at close range. He was 22. Morris was shot in the head twice, also at close range. He died at 21. Shocked at what she heard, Tammy stayed glued to the hole in the floor. Peering down, she could see the men standing over their victims and watched as they wrapped Morris in blankets and Paul in garbage bags and dragged them down to the basement. Using a mop, they cleaned the living room. Then the men split Morris's cash, each taking $80. Tammy came back downstairs, strolled into the kitchen like nothing had happened but a ham in the oven. The bodies lay bundled in the basement overnight as her killers slept upstairs. The Morning Sentinel reported that the next day they moved one of the bodies into the trunk of Hubert's car, a yellow Grand Prix. But just as they were about to load the second body, Tammy's mother and sister surprised them with the visit bringing turkey leftovers. The group visited in the living room. Without a clue, there was a body below them. Afterwards, the men loaded the body and evidence into the trunk of the Grand Prix. Tammy rode along with Henry and Hubert as they drove to dispose of the bodies and the evidence. In a wooded area off Keith's Road in Clinton, they stopped the car, opened the trunk, and dragged the two bodies 22 feet into the woods and discarded Morris and Paul. They quickly cut some brush down and attempted to cover them. Then they drove to Upper Bell Squeeze Road in Clinton, 20 miles from the cabin, and discarded the evidence. Thrown randomly into the woods were the blood-soaked clothes of their victims, including socks and a t-shirt with a gunshot hole in the chest. On the opposite side of the road, they heaved the bloody mattress, pillows, a quilt, afghan, 
in a bottle of bleach. On Friday, a citizen spotted the garbage bags containing the blood-soaked clothes and reported it. State troopers arrived and thought at first it was likely deer blood, but decided to send it for testing just to be sure. Tammy was with Henry when he took Morris and Paul's rifles to a gun broker and sold them, along with his rifle. On Sunday, the men purchased a 1976 Pontiac Catalina. Henry and Hubert planned to flee Maine. Meanwhile, investigators heard about a domestic incident involving violence and possibly an abduction. Their investigation led them to Henry and Hubert's cabin. On Monday, it had been four days since the murders. That afternoon, police visited the farmhouse on Back Road and discovered it empty. They set up a roadblock for the Grand Prix but failed to locate it. Then they received a tip about another car the men may be using. A be on the lookout for a Pontiac was issued, and at 9 p.m., Augusta police spotted the car and pulled it over. Henry and Hubert were taken in for questioning. After an intense interrogation, Hubert confessed and led investigators to the murdered men. Henry and Hubert were charged with murder. In 1991, while waiting in jail for the trial to begin, Henry was put in a cell with Michael Stackpole. The two inmates hit it off and got along well. In May, officers conducted a surprise security check. And when they inspected Henry and Michael's cell, they discovered that one of the cell's bars had been partially cut. They searched the cell for cutting tools and found pieces of hacksaw blades. Officers had no idea how the men got a hold of them, but as saw perhaps an inmate working in the shop provided them. Now this is where it gets interesting. They were tried separately in 1992. Each pointed the finger at the other as being the one who pulled the trigger. And because the jury couldn't determine who had fired the fatal shots, the men were both acquitted. A federal grand jury then took a different approach. They indicted them both on federal firearm charges, traveling interstate to avoid prosecution, and removing evidence. The two were tried together in 1993. Once the prosecution rested their case, Hubert changed his plea to guilty. Henry decided to try his luck with the jury. On December 7th, Henry was found guilty and sentenced to life. Hubert's sentence was reduced for his guilty plea, and he was sentenced to five years in prison. Henry was sent to a federal detention center in Rhode Island, but the possibility of never seeing outside the prison walls was too much for him, and after only five years in prison, he died by suicide at the age of 35. Hubert was released from prison, and as of this writing, would be 51. 
Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Colleen Ritzer. Philip Chisholm had just arrived at Danvers High School. At 14, he joined soccer and was making friends. But Philip was hiding a dark and sinister secret. Colleen, pretty young math teacher, had no idea what he had planned. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Verbal Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers. <laughs>